Early in Jesus' ministry, even his critics regarded him as a devout man who earnestly sought God. You remember, that's not where it ends. Uh, In the end, there were those who said that Jesus was in league with Satan. But at the beginning, everyone understood him to be one who searched for God. Because of this reputation, people were understandably confused as to why Jesus did not practice religious fasting. In Jesus' day, devout people fasted. The Jews fasted. The Pharisees fasted. The disciples of John the Baptist, his followers, fasted. But for some odd reason, Jesus did not. And we came to that passage as we return to the book of Luke today. Luke chapter 5 and verse 35. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Jesus where he is questioned here about this failure to fast. Luke 5 and verse 33. (coughs) They said to him, John's disciples often fast and pray, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours go on eating and drinking. Jesus answered, Can you make the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. In those days they will fast. While Jesus was here on earth, it was time to celebrate. But now that Jesus is gone, as we await his return, Devotional fasting is an appropriate spiritual discipline. And we cannot forget in this regard that although Jesus did not fast during his earthly ministry, this was not a pattern because he was with the disciples. It was time for the kingdom to be presented. It was time to celebrate. Although he did not fast during his earthly ministry, Jesus did indeed fast. So ironically... While he was seen in his ministry as one who did not fast, we turn to him as our model for fasting. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. (coughs) Now we worked our way through chapter (coughs) 5 here a few weeks ago. and As we consider Jesus, the one who does not fast, it reminds us, and we return back to chapter 4, Verses 1 and 2, where Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The issue is salvation history. Where, what is going on at this particular time? That is what leads Jesus to either fast or not to fast. So in chapter 5 he's not, in chapter 4 he is. And of course, it it is because of where he is at uniquely in salvation history at these different times. But I'd like here in chapter 4 to tag on to this phrase that he was led by the Spirit in the desert. Jesus said, I always do those things that please my Father. There was never a time when Jesus did something that did not please the Father. He always listened to what the Father said and always followed the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit here leads Jesus to do just that, to obey the Father, and he does so by, oddly enough, pointing Jesus to the desert and leading him to lay aside food for 40 days. Now is it not strange that the Father wills for his child not to eat food? That is just odd. We put parents in prison when they don't feed their children. And we should. To withhold food from children is an egregious crime, and we rightly condemn that in our culture. But is that always 
true? Is that a universal? I don't think that it is. There was a certain little girl who eats at our table who decided one day that she would not, the rest of her life, eat fruit. It was decided and over as far as she was concerned, and there was a certain father who eats with that daughter who decided she would eat fruit. And the battle lines were drawn. We permitted her to drink all the liquid that she desired, but the next bite of food that was going in her mouth was going to be fruit. And that was a decision that I made as her father and her poor mother had to carry out. Not just for one meal, but for two meals. And we don't really remember how many more. But she would not eat a bite of fruit, and she would rather starve to death than to eat that piece of fruit. We were stunned by how long she held out. And it taught us something again about child number four, which was true about child one, two, and three, that there's a pretty strong spirit in the Miller clan. But we withheld food. Now many would criticize me for that decision, I realize, for withholding food from a child. No loving parent would ever do such a thing. Well, I'd like to offer that there was absolutely nothing but love that led me to do that. As vital as it is to care for our children's spiritual nurture, it is more important to care for their, for their physical nurture. It is more important for us to care for their spiritual nurture and their moral well-being and to teach them that there are laws and that there are rules and that there are words that they must obey when they don't feel like it. I hated that experience. Beth hated that experience. But we withheld food for reasons other than abuse. I would suggest they were reasons of love. Physical pain is sometimes brought upon our children when we, in fact, love them. Why would a loving God ever even suggest that one of his children suffer hunger? We're going to have to get out of our Western American way of thinking here, where we give everything good all the time and never cause any physical pain or difficulty for those that we really love. That is not biblical love. And so we find a, dif- a distance between our culture and its understanding of what love is and the God who loves us. There are times when he brings physical pain into our lives because he loves us. And so we have a loving father who is leading his son not to eat for 40 days. Do we call this child abuse? Do you realize there are evangelical theologians who say it is? They're saying that for God to send his son to die on the cross is child abuse. And therefore, God did not send his son to die on the cross to pay the penalty of sin. Now, these are people who believe in salvation through faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. 
We've got to very much be very cautious of how our culture and our thinking leads us to consider God. We don't start with our world and reason back to what we believe God to be. We start with what God has said. And we make the adjustments. Well, on this, we have the Son led by the Spirit to lay aside food for 40 days. That is a torturous regimen. Certainly this was rare. We have no indication if Jesus did this a second time, but God has never been shy about yanking food or shelter or sleep from his people when to do so is loving for the, toward their spiritual enriching growth, no matter how painful. In fact, Jesus did not miss the fact that what he was experiencing in this spirit-initiated fast was something God had done before in the life of his people. After God demonstrated his amazing love for the Israelites by delivering them from Egypt and walking them through the Red Sea, God led them into the desert regions where there was no food and there was no water. And even, even the open theist would say that God knew there was no food and there was no water out there. He knew where he was leading them. He led his people to be hungry and to be thirsty. Why would a loving God do that? I can imagine Israel saying, we are right where the pillar of cloud and fire has led us. We are doing exactly what God wants us to do, but there is no food here. We followed God's leading, but there's no water in these parts. What is going on? Is this a loving God's method of operation? Why deprive the Israelites of food? Please turn to Exodus chapter 15. <clears throat> I'd like to consider that very question. In chapter 14 of Exodus, we have the drowning of the Egyptian army. Is there any doubt at that point on whose side God is or who is on his side? There's no question at all. In chapter 15, in fact, Israel very much gets the point, as you see, as you can just skim there with your eye. Exodus chapter 15, this lengthy song of rejoicing on the shores of the Red Sea. We are free at last. God has delivered the nation of Israel. He is our loving, faithful, powerful God. We rejoice. Israel trudges after the pillar of cloud, excited to follow her loving and powerful God wherever he leads from this point forward. And where does he lead? He leads chapter 15 and verse 22 to a place where there's no water. 15.22, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. That is a desperate situation. We're talking about being brought to the place of death. We would imagine there could have been, perhaps for the little ones, some source of milk uh, from the animals that were there and, of course, from their mothers, but animals and mothers who produce milk need water to produce milk. This is a nation that's about to die for a lack of water. But glory to God when they, find, they finally reach Mara. There is an oasis and someone, I'm sure, ran up the first person and, ran, and fell down there at those waters 
put their face in the water and came up very discouraged. For we read there, verse 23, when they came to Mara, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Mara. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? And Moses turns to God, verse 25. Then Moses cried out to the Lord, Where else are you going to turn? God, help me here. You've led us here in the desert. We have no water to drink. We are going to die as a nation. The Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. Notice that. A miraculous solution provided by God. Now the next verse, or or sentence, there, verse 25, in the middle of the verse, there the Lord made a decree and a law for them, and there he tested them. God is essentially saying, I've led you through this experience so that you understand something. You must learn to trust my word. He made a decree. You must learn to trust my word. If you do, I will take care of you. Don't ever forget this. Next stop, Elim. Verse 26, he said, If you listen carefully to the voice of the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elim, where there were twelve springs and seventy palm trees, and they camped there near the water. Crisis over. Here they were, with plenty of water, and everybody is happy. And then the pillar of cloud rises and begins to move. And the Israelites again trudge on, having learned the lesson, if we hear his word, if we follow what he says, if we honor his decree, he will provide. Where will the cloud lead this time? To a place with no food. Chapter 16 and verse 1, the whole Israelite community set out from Elim and came to the desert of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Now notice what is said of God's relationship to Israel in verse 4. And the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. I will test them. You see again the issue. An empty stomach, a physical need, and the test of God. I will test them. There. Now, over the next 40 years, the Israelites will spy out the land of Canaan, run away in unbelief, wander in the desert for 40 years, and then return to the east side of the Jordan, overlooking Palestine, where Moses will instruct the younger generation as they are preparing to enter into the promised land. That brings us to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. The setting of this chapter, Moses recounting the days in the desert when Israel had no food and no water. And he summarizes the purpose of that ordeal. 
Chapter 8 and verse 1, be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land that the Lord promised on oath to your forefathers. In other words, do not do what your forefathers did, whose bones you've buried in the desert. Trust God and he will give you the land that he has promised to you. Then in order to further encourage this new generation, Moses points back to God's dealings with the older generation. Verse 2, Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the desert these 40 years to humble you and to test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep His commands. Now he's talking to them about their experience, but he's talking also about their forefathers who have fallen in the desert. What was God's purpose? What was it? In order to know what was in your heart. That's why he led them through this ordeal, to lay bare the soul of the Israelites. Why does he lead them to a place of no food and water? To humble you and to test you. Why did God want to humble them and to test them? To know what was in their heart. More specifically, to know if they would keep God's commands. So God withheld food from his people in order to test their allegiance to his word. How did God specifically humble Israel in the desert in order to test their hearts? Verse 3, if there's any doubt, he humbled you, causing you to hunger and feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your forefathers had known. You see there that God, who loves his people, caused them to be hungry in order that he might feed them with manna. What did God find in the Israelites' hearts when he led them to be hungry? What did he find there? Construct the list in your mind. He found grumbling, he found complaining, he found rebellion, he found selfishness. When he took the food away and the empty stomach was left, He found in the heart all kinds of moral filth. Well, what else can you expect? I mean, without being dishonoring to God, what is he expecting he's going to find? You're walking around in this hot desert with no home, no food, no water. That would make anybody grumpy, right? Wrong. That would not make anyone grumpy. They grumbled and complained and lusted and rebelled, not because their stomachs were empty, but because their hearts were full, full of grumbling and complaining and lust and rebellion. At the end of a 40-day fast, none of that sinful sludge oozed out of Jesus because it wasn't there. And when God opened his heart, it was found to the very core to be pure and to have no dependence upon food. Isn't it easy for us to get this mixed up? If I had the food in my stomach, I wouldn't be so crabby. We draw that conclusion a lot of times, don't we? And there is a connection, isn't there? It's easy to become irritable and selfish and short-tempered when we've missed a meal or two, or we've missed a night of sleep, for that matter. 
Is it not easy to excuse that behavior because of what we are lacking physically? I'm sorry I was so short with you. Oh, don't worry about it. We'd been too long without food. We just needed lunch. Which being interpreted is our good behavior owes less to the filling of the Holy Spirit and more to the filling of our stomachs. In fact, we are all quite capable of blunting the cravings of the flesh with food. Food can take one's mind off of immoral thoughts. Food can take one's mind off of bitter thoughts and angry thoughts and failure and discouragement. It can blunt the heartaches of this life. Food is, let me say here, a wonderful gift of God that we should routinely participate in. All right? I've spoken on these things sometimes, and people look at me as if I never eat food. I eat lots of food, okay? It's good. We should eat it. But food is a wonderful gift to be enjoyed to God's glory with regularity. Can act like a drug. It pacifies us. It numbs us to other passions which fester in our soul. In fact, we should be warned. If you enter a fast to seek God, it is quite possible that you will see a side of yourself you don't want to see. You will see sin that bubbles up to the top that you really don't want to have to deal with. What did God find in their hearts? That's question number one. Second question, what did God do about it? Isn't this amazing? What did God do to the grumbling and the complaining about food? He gave them food. If God is a sinister and mean and angry father who withholds food from his children, he would say, and as a matter of fact, I'd probably have been tempted to say, you aren't getting anything till you quit complaining. God gives them food. And I'm not saying, by the way, that's the way that we should always operate as parents. But you see the grace of God here, which neither you nor your fathers had known. I provided this man. It was unknown in Israel's previous history. Why did God withhold food and water from the Israelites? To teach you. The purpose was teaching. What was the lesson? Verse 3, the middle of verse 3, to teach you, there's the purpose, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Now that is amazing grace. Israel complained and belly ached and questioned God, and how does God respond? He feeds them. So he led them to fast, they complained, and he gives them manna. Why? To teach them to trust God more than they trusted and relied upon food to teach them that God would provide their needs in His way, in His time, and they could always trust in it. Now, let's fast forward 1,500 years, and we see Jesus of Nazareth emerging from the Jordan River where He has just been baptized. <coughs> Luke chapter 4. There he stands on the banks of the river. The Spirit of God descends upon him like a dove and rests on him. And then a voice. God speaks from heaven and declares, This is my beloved Son, 
in whom I am well pleased. Does God love His Son? Think of the parallel with Israel. Does He love Israel when He leads them to a place of no food? He's just delivered them from Egypt. He's just split the, river, the waters for them, the Red Sea. He loves His children. Does He love Jesus? He speaks from heaven. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And where does God take that? He leads him to a place of 40 days of fasting. Chapter 4 and verse 1, full of the Holy Spirit, Jesus returns to the Jordan, led by the Spirit into the desert. He led Israel into the desert to test them. He leads his son into the desert to test him. In verse 2, as we've noted earlier, for 40 days he's there tempted and he eats nothing and is hungry. Jesus' body is incredibly weak. His spirit and mind are under unbelievable strain. Every cell in his human body is screaming for food. His life hangs in the balance. He is isolated with no help, no friends. He's alone with no support or accountability. And in this vulnerable, desperate position, the devil says to him, if you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. The Greek text would not indicate, I don't believe that he's saying if. Now, I'm not sure. Maybe you are, maybe you're not the Son of God, so let's figure this out. Why don't you make this bread? I think he's really saying, you're the Son of God. That's who you are. So do this. Feed yourself. What is Satan saying? Now, I don't know how much of the Bible Satan knows, but it's clear he knows some of it. And my suspicion is he knows God's Word pretty well. He's arguing theology with Jesus here. And Satan, I think, is saying, he knows the parallel between what Jesus is experiencing and what Israel was experiencing, and that's where Satan goes for his argument He says, essentially, Israel of old was led by God to hunger in their desert wanderings. You have been led by God to hunger in your desert wanderings. What did God do, Jesus? God provided Israel with manna, with supernatural food. You are the Son of Man. You are God. So do what you did back then and provide supernatural food in the desert. You did it once, Jesus. You can do it again right now, and you'll be doing just what your father did. That's a subtle argument. What is at stake? Jesus knows that he has been led by God into the desert area to be tested. He can listen to the word of Satan or he can wait for what? For the word of his Father. He can feed on this bread now or he can feed on the word of the Father. In fact, there's something human beings need much more desperately than food, Jesus understands, and that is God. He had learned experientially exactly what God wanted to teach Israel, verse 4. And what does he say? Is this any mistake? Jesus says, it is written. Man does not live 
on bread alone. Jesus was obviously meditating here upon Israel's experience as recorded in Deuteronomy 8 that we've looked at earlier. There was something about God's revelation concerning Israel's fasting during the 40 years in the desert that sustained Jesus in this 40-day fast. Satan, says Jesus, you are all wrong. You are telling me that above all else I must have food. And I am here to tell you that above all else, I must have God. I must feed on his word. When his word indicates that it's time to eat, I will eat. And if his word does not indicate that, and I die from starvation, then I die from starvation. There's something more important than my gut, and that's my heart. I will not eat at your command, but will feed on the word. Food that is better than bread to a starving man. Come back to Luke 5. really opens some new vistas, doesn't it? Into the Jesus who didn't fast. This Jesus who did not fast says, it's not time right now during my earthly ministry, but when I leave, then they will fast. Why would a loving God purposefully withhold food from his children? Why would he withhold food from Israel? We've seen what he says. Why would he withhold food from Jesus? We've seen what he says. Why does he encourage us to fast? And let me just throw in here a quick sideline. This may not be physically his will for everyone. And so it is not given as a command, but it is given as an expectation. Not everyone perhaps can honorably do that, but probably far more could than think possible. That having been said, why does he encourage us as our loving Father to set aside food? God, God's word does not encourage fasting because God is an unloving Father. It does not encourage fasting so that we will become spiritually proud in self-discipline. In fact, if fasting does not produce humility, don't touch it. If it produces pride, get rid of it. But God, I think, encourages fasting as a discipline through which we can learn to depend upon Him apart from the pacifying influence of physical food. Fasting, then, can expose the worst in us. In Israel, it was grumbling and rebellion and selfishness. So we might stop and say, why then do it? If it's going to expose what is weak, what is wrong in my soul, why do it? First of all, fasting is a spiritual discipline that tests the fiber of our faith in God. Secondly, why do it? God delights to provide spiritual food for the hungry soul. It is not evil for God to withhold physical food from his children because God is capable of giving supernatural sustenance. 
How did God respond to this belly-aching, hungry crowd of Israelites? He gave them manna. If God is an angry, sadistic God trying to hurt people, would he do that for selfish people? God is not interested in starving people, and he's not interested in starving you. What he's interested in is teaching his weak people that we can, in fact, fully depend on his word. And the things sometimes that we think we need are really not needs. Sometimes they're really just drugs. God tested Israel's heart through fasting, and they were found wanting. But he graciously and mercifully responded to their fast by proving to them that he himself was their life-sustaining provider. So when the numbing pleasures of food were removed from Jesus, what was uncovered in his soul? A heart that depended entirely upon God. And I'd like to suggest that that's what fasting is about today. To nurture and to encourage a heart that says, I cannot depend on the physical sustenance of my physical environment. I can depend on God alone. Not because I'm strong to hold on to God's hand, but because He is so great, I can entrust Him with my life. Jesus would prefer to starve to death than to dishonor God. And so in his extended fast, Jesus experienced the truth that man does not live by bread alone. And that is our quest as well. As we undertake biblical, honorable, devotional fasting, we provide an occasion to feed on God and to be satisfied in Him alone. That is an incomparable meal. What do you eat when you're fasting? John 6 and verse 48, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which a man may eat and not die. You see that bread descending from heaven? You see that bread on the ground as the Israelites go to pick it up? That bread in its fullest sense is me. I have come and descended from heaven. And in relating to me and knowing me, you can have a food that you taste you will never have to eat again. There is a water that I give You will never thirst again. I am that bread. I am that spiritual rock that brought forth the water. I, says Jesus in John 6, am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh which I will give for the life of the world. There may be reasons God does not want you to fast, be at peace. But if He leads you to do so, know that He loves you.
And as you fast, then, feed on the presence of Christ, sent from heaven by a loving Father. Set aside food to actively seek your soul's satisfaction, not in the bread of this world, but in the bread of life. Let's talk to our Father in prayer. Our Father in heaven, we sense how weak we are, how little we dare, how little we risk, how unwilling we are to lay aside the things of this life. in order to seek for you. God, we are mindful as we stand in the presence of your word. We are mindful how tightly we hold onto things in this life. God, I ask that you will please in your mercy help us to let go Perhaps we need to do so slowly. But I pray that you would fit us for heaven. One day at a time, that we would be willing to let go of these things that seem to matter so much to us. That we would trust your word. And be willing even to trust it alone. You may be leading some of your people to say, This is something I cannot do and I don't think God would want me to. Lord, make that clear if this is your desire and may such individuals be at peace. You may be leading others among us to seek you in this way. To quietly, unassumingly, without announcement, to lay aside food for 24 hours or for longer. And to during that time, commune with you in a unique way. If this is your desire, I pray, dear God, that you will protect and lead and guide and direct into that process. I pray, Lord, that you'll preserve your people through that process that sin would not overtake. And I ask, dear Father, that through it, you may do a unique spiritual work in the heart of our church to teach us to feed on your word. I pray that we would always, and as we go home today, receive our food with thanks and without guilt as appropriate. That we would rejoice in the blessing of food. But Lord, may we somewhere, some way, by your grace, lay down this gift and turn our back on it, that we might face you and say that we too, like Jesus, do not live by bread alone. May we take this fast into other areas. May there be times when we lay down sleep and turn our back and say, I do not live by rest alone. 
May we lay down our wealth and say to you, I do not live by wealth alone. And may we in all of our lives, Lord, not through self-promoting religious regimens, but through a heart of humility and meekness before you, may we lay down the things of this world and turn our back periodically, systematically, to continue to nurture our hearts to be ready to meet you in eternity. I pray that we would do this so that someday, as our eyes close in death, our hands are not clenched. They are not clinging to the things of this world. They are open, seeking to receive the pleasures of heaven. May we hold loosely to this life, and may we pursue you with all of the energy and wisdom that you would provide us. I pray this for this church, for my own heart, that this would be our experience. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.